Hi there, folks, and welcome to NTI's Japan Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Zivna Kojima again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to have you with us, as always. Hope you're staying safe and dry. It's a rainy season here in Japan, which unfortunately comes with its annual share of uh, floods and mudslides and sadly loss of life and property. We've already had some communities uh, here in southwestern Japan, about two hours south of Fukuoka City, where we are. So in Kumamoto Prefecture, people have been devastated um, already by these seasonal downpours over the last few days. So 35 people confirmed dead, and as much as I hope otherwise, this is probably not the last we'll hear of the uh, death toll. So if you are here in Japan, stay safe. Watch your phones for prefectural government notices of evacuation, if any, and make sure to have your emergency evacuation kit handy. Hopefully you won't have to use it, but better safe than sorry. Now, for today's episode, and particularly in light of this annual wet season, we've had a special guest join us for a nice and long chat about Japanese homes, mainly houses, mainly wooden structures. And there are plenty of theories out there about the reasons why Japanese homes are built of such light and short-lived materials like wood and light steel frames, as opposed to bricks, mortar, concrete, um, which are in use, particularly for larger condo blocks and commercial buildings, but are far from the norm for smaller houses and multifamily blocks. Now, I've had my own ideas about why this is the case, as do most people who aren't in the know, and apparently our ideas are very wrong. So it was great to finally have this um, so-called mystery explained in explicit detail. And who better to explain this than a home designer, architect, and carpenter, and a foreigner at that. Now, she's very quick to proclaim that she's not a certified architect, even though when you listen to her speak and check out the links in the show notes, um, you will probably share my view that she puts many licensed and certified architects to shame. But I'll let you draw your own conclusions. So here we go. Without further ado, our conversation with Anne Kotz, designer, carpenter, and builder extraordinaire. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. Okay, so with us on the line from uh, Tsukuba in Ibaraki, which uh, to those of you who are not familiar with, is a lovely little city about an hour northeast of Tokyo, and it's actually pretty well known as a science and technology hub. So with us from there is Anne Coates, who's originally from Idaho in the States, and she started out as a trainee architect and then ended up in Japan as an impromptu architect, home designer, carpenter of sorts. And finally, as a baker, which is what she's uh, spending most of her time on these days, although she still does a fair bit of renovating and design work. But I'd better let her tell her own story in her own words. Um, she does it so much better than I can. So, Anne, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Ziv. Thanks for the intro. Of course, I'm delighted to talk about Japanese architecture and vernacular design. Um, I just, uh, to let you know what vernacular design is, that's basically the design that has developed in a country or a region over a period of hundreds or even thousands of years. And so that's, um, for example, in Iraq or Iran, that's where they have these great stack uh, ventilation systems that cool the houses or, you know, the adobe, the adobe construction in the Navajo Nation, that kind of thing, that's vernacular design. And uh, that's actually something I'm really passionate about and uh, love to talk about it. There's been a lot of uh, a lot written on Japanese vernacular, but I really think there's still more to say, particularly in light of modern research on passive architecture and air quality and also net zero energy construction. Okay, but hang on. So b before we get right into all of that um, and the other good stuff that really is what our listeners are here for, can you maybe first give us a bit of your origin story? So like what brought you here to Japan in the first place? How did you end up here? All of that? Um, okay, yeah, well, that's a, kind of a long story, but I'll try and condense it. Um, 
I grew up as uh, I grew up in Idaho, as you said, on a potato farm. Interestingly yeah. enough, everybody <laughs> everybody knows about Idaho potatoes, and that's true. <laughs> so, uh, but then I went to the university in Oregon, and um, after I uh, studied abroad in Germany, then uh, my my university in Oregon had a sister university in Japan. So after I graduated, I went to uh, Try teaching English in Tokyo, and that was just at the end of the bubble. It was 1993, so I've just outed myself. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I spent two years teaching at a uh, private language school where I met a lovely Japanese gentleman, and then uh, both of us actually found grad school programs in the U.S. Um, at the University of Oregon. Um, I went to study architecture, and then he uh, studied uh, neural networks, cognitive neuroscience kind of things. Um, oh, wow. Don't even ask me about that. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a real science kind of guy. So, uh, and then we both, you know, after we graduated, then we both worked in the U.S. for a while. But back then, there was this first tech bubble. I don't know if you remember, I'm probably too young, but... Anyway, uh, he, he had a pretty sweet gig at a software company, but uh, the company went belly up. So uh, eventually we decided to move to Japan uh, again. So then we moved back to Japan, sold our house in Portland and everything, moved back to Japan. But uh, I didn't really speak much, much Japanese then, um, so it really, really didn't work out to um, get a job as an intern architect. So that was kind of... Uh, a little bit of a bummer, but I did a whole kinds of stuff. I taught English. I uh, I edited for scientific papers. I even taught pie baking, which <laughs> mm. so yeah, it's one of the benefits of growing up on a farm. You learn how to bake pies. And um, but but um, around uh, around the time I was probably uh, I don't know probably thirty ish. I discovered that I was severely gluten intolerant, and uh, back then that was really pretty much unknown. Uh, so, but but it really kind of changed my life a lot. So, but anyway, that's something that probably we'll mention later. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we, um, my husband and I, finally uh, we we had a daughter, and then we finally escaped from Tokyo. Thank goodness. I mean, you probably live in Tokyo, but you know Tokyo's nice. But thank goodness anyway. So uh, we moved to lovely Tsukuba, <laughs> which I I think it's really great out here. And I joined the Architecture Society and made lots of good friends. But then the um, great Hanshin earthquake happened, and that's really what pushed me back into architecture because after the earthquake, uh, because of my architecture society friends, I got to hear about this little beautiful tea house that uh, was out in the countryside, and um, it was near the Mount Scuba, and it had been damaged in the earthquake, and the owners were going to just pull it down and throw it away. And, uh, you know, a friend and I went and looked at it, and it was really, really pretty. And, yeah, it obviously had some serious problems, but um, because of the nature of Japanese architecture, you can actually take things apart. You know, the traditional joinery can actually be taken apart, like Lincoln Logs. And so um, my friend and I decided to salvage it, and um, so so we did. We took it apart, and... Uh, we got some scuba dive students to help us, and then uh, the person who really helped the most was um, a, f a friend of another architecture friend, Eiji Tsushima, and uh, 
man, that guy, I'm telling you what, he's, he's just, he's just an amazing guy. He's a preservationist. He's an autodidact. He's just a total Renaissance guy. And he has a design build firm here in Scuba and specializing in traditional construction practices using modern technology and methods. So, uh, so he basically volunteered his time to help us, you know, crazy, crazy guy gene looking to take down this tea house and he's you know and so he he really made everything happen and and um helped us do that and uh so so we did take that down and we stored it 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 um eventually did not get end up being rebuilt although some of the parts of it were reused so that was you know six one half a dozen of the other i guess not not great but not terrible anyway um anyway it was really great in one way which was that uh tsushima-san was impressed by my farmer girl ability to swing a hammer <laughs> so uh, after a while I convinced him to hire me as a designer in his firm so it was really great it was the, I, I, I really have to say it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me but I was definitely in for an eye-opener working there that was something else <laughs> right so you you start working there and what you're surrounded by all these um gruff cranky old Japanese carpenters I'm guessing um, cranky and old right like mostly middle aged or elderly men or men definitely <laughs> what was that like oh man you're totally right about big rough old Japanese carpenters <laughs> I'm telling you what those guys I mean they're the sweetest guys in the world but but honestly the construction industry as a whole in Japan is an exclusive game for men only it's um, it, it's kind of funny but you know since i'm a westerner i kind of get a pass for being female gaijin pass <laughs> yeah as i'm a, i mean a gaijin and i'm white you know so yeah. those guys you know they didn't really know what to expect from me so you know i sort of just got what you know i got to do what comes naturally to me and like i said i'm a farm girl so i'm just i'm perfectly happy to crawl around in a sweaty suit filled attic space i mean it's better than mucking out the barn <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, I'm crawling around on the top of these beams up in the, you know, 12 or 15 feet off the floor, taking measurements and drawing plans or, you know, or cleaning those same soot-encrusted beams. I'm telling you, that's a fun job. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, there there's just so many things that go, in, go into uh, renovating or restoring an old traditional-style uh, minka or farmhouse. So I did all kinds of stuff. I mean, I was drawing the plans, but I was also, you know, sometimes running a jack jackhammer or, you know, mixing and pouring cement or puttying and, you know, prettifying the old beams and things or sanding and painting. I mean, you name it, I probably did it. <laughs> so, and that's really what works with those old cranky uh, architects and, uh, and, and uh, carpenters. I mean, that's what they really, you know, they just, they just really like somebody that um, can just pick up a tool and use it and doesn't have to be, you know, told everything to do. So yeah. that's a really good thing. I mean, I was asked to serve tweet tea. No. <laughs> twice. <laughs> twice. That's all. <laughs> After that, the word kind of got around. And uh, so I didn't really get asked to do that again. You know, if it's my client, then yeah, I'd serve tea. But I don't serve tea just because a woman ought to do it, you know. So. Yeah. And nobody ever actually dared to ask me to make a photocopy. Or fax, right? <laughs> or fax, oh yeah. Seriously, those guys all use faxes. So, uh, but, but anyway, you know, it, 
you know, the the biggest thing that I found was that I just had to learn the language, and that's something that's still just absolutely daunting because. You know, you think you're pretty fluent in Japanese. You get all cocky about your Japanese and your accent and stuff until you have to uh, explain your plans to a seven-year-old Ibaraki Ben speaker who has no teeth. <laughs> I mean, seriously, those guys are so—they're so hard to understand. You know, sometimes I actually had to get somebody to translate for me. You know, from from Japanese to Japanese. From Japanese to Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because Ibaraki Ben. You know, it's really funny. Ibaraki pen is so it, it, it's so interesting because they lose vowels. You know, there's in Japanese traditional in typical Tokyo Japanese there's a i u a o. Yeah. But in Ibaraki they say a i i e i. They lose like two vowels. It's like what happened? So, so I mean, instead of saying iro en pizza, they say iru in pizza. Ah. Oh. Yeah, so it's like really hard to understand, and then you know, and then a person that has no teeth left, it's like wow, you know. <laughs> so, so, and then you know, and then they uh, they they would like to have a little bit of fun with me. So you know, sometimes they'd be like, you know, they knew very well that I had no idea what the yonsun gakutsuta or is you know what's the what what part of the wood is the keshomen. I had no, you know, they knew I didn't know that. Well, everybody knows that. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so. But they'd have a little fun with me sometimes with that. So, oh, and also uh, another thing that just was hysterically, you know, it was it was both really daunting. You um, have to be able to translate between shaku and sun measurements and and centimeters. And, oh. and you know, I grew up with inches, so there's two translations right there. Oh my god. So, yeah, I mean, it just really, I mean, first of all, Americans can go jump in a lake for you still using inches. I think that's stupid. But <laughs> but anyway, I'm an American, so I get to say that. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, so um, the shaku and sun thing, it's, it, it just was really, really, really confusing at first. And then you have to just know all the conversions off of the top of your head. Because, well, you know, hopefully, hopefully none of those, um, um, Measuring mistakes actually went to production, right? You would have picked them up before you actually start banging the wood together, right? Oh yeah, oh yeah, okay. yeah. That's, <laughs> yeah that's, but but it is an issue because you know you you just have to you just have to keep it straight, you know. And for me, the biggest issue was that you know in a foot, a foot and a shaku are almost the same thing, right? But a foot is divided into six, and shaku is divided into or so twelve. I mean, and a shaku is divided into ten. So half a foot is six inches, but half a shaku is five sun. So, you know, I just couldn't, I couldn't get it through my head that people would be like hanjaku, hanjaku, and I'd be writing a six, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, <laughs> that was a little bit dangerous. But yeah, nothing, no, no big, no big problems happened because of that. It was just mostly my time that was taken up. So. Yeah. But uh, but anyway, back to um, Kenshiku Koboyu, I started working over there. And uh, those guys, they're really incredible. And it's not just the carpenters. The tile guys and the roofers and the plasters and all those traditional tradespeople are just amazing. I mean, like the, the uh, plasters, you know, they train with a tub of water. And they have to, they fill the tub of water completely up to the rim and then they have to practice 
running their trowel over it without spilling any water. So they have to get the bottom of the trowel wet and slide it across the surface of the of the water and not spill any over the edge. That's like martial arts training, isn't it? It really is. It's just really surprising and it's just really amazing. And and here's the other thing. That this is this illustration I think is the most striking to an architect who was trained in the US. In a two by four house in the US, when you frame a window in, you have to factor at least an inch of screen space. That's where that's the open space around the window. So you have to have like an extra inch of space in uh, all sides on all sides of where the window is going to fit because the frame is never going to be true. So you know you just have to factor that in. So you yeah. you you make the space for the window bigger than the, what the window is designed to be, and then when they put it in, they shim it up. They put these little um, supports in, and they shim it up so it's straight and true and then when they uh when they finish out the house then they put trim pieces on it to cover up the opening and then you know they also put insulation in there and they cover everything up so there's all these trim pieces all over everything and those are to basically cover up the holes you know cover up the spaces and i tell you what i i was never more shocked i the the first house i worked on I um, designed the window space, and then I tried to design the frame bigger to have a shim space. And the guys were like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm putting in a shim space. And they're like, what's that for? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, well, that's a shim space. And so what happened was they framed the window to the exact bloody dimensions of the built window really not not a not a millimeter apart nothing wow and then so these were wooden windows in that house and then the window the the window maker came in and he just slid the window exactly into place that's amazing it was i was so shocked and i just couldn't you know at first i couldn't believe it and then i was like well you know and so the next thing you do in a in a in an american construction is you have to caulk around the window right and they're like and I'm like, aren't we going to caulk? And they're like, what are we going to caulk? And I'm like, around the window. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, why would we do that? <laughs> and so, so turns out that in a traditional Japanese wooden house, basically the humidity will expand the wood and seal it. Oh. So it seals the wood of the window to the frame. So there's no need for caulking. And I'm just wow. like, Yeah. So, so that's just absolutely, I mean, that was just absolutely stunning for me, but, but, um, anyway, so, but, you know, that humidity thing, that's another huge thing. I, I went to Uvo specifically because they have a really good environmental program and I'm very interested in um, environmental architecture, sustainable architecture. So Uvo has the, a real strong emphasis on passive design and designing to suit the climate you're in. And that's really, you know, in especially, I don't know if you know about, you know, the Bauhaus movement and the um, industrial yep. sort of international design. Um, but that's sort of this aesthetic of having, you know, really clean lines and flat roofs and, you know, this international design aesthetic that everybody likes. 
And, uh, you know, initially a lot of people thought, oh, Japanese architecture really fits into that because of the, you know, the clean lines of an interior in a Japanese building. Yep. But the problem is that, you know, of course, a flat roof doesn't work well in a rainy climate. You've got to, you know, you've got to basically cover that with some really serious materials. And it's, it's, not, it's not a mechanical uh, solution you have to you have to bring a chemical solution along you basically have to tar it and, and glue everything down so that your flat roof doesn't leak um, so so you know that it just doesn't work very well in a, in a rainy climate and, and of course you know in a in a northern German townhouse you don't have a lot of light in the winter yeah. so you don't want to have big heavy eaves or anything because you know, you, all you're doing is just reducing your light. You want the light, yeah. Yeah. So, so in a, but in a Japanese building, you really want to protect from that blazing, sweltering Japanese summer sun. Yeah. So you know, in so that's this vernacular architecture thing. And um, so, so you know, back to the humidity thing. That what I really didn't understand was that. Humidity is really the primary driver of Japan's vernacular style. Literally everything about a traditional Japanese house is designed to mitigate, not heat, as is usually assumed. I mean, everybody's like, oh, Japanese houses are designed for summer. That's not the point. The mold is the point. So, because right now, you know, you can surely feel it. I mean, it's, it's right now the rainy season. And... Relative humidity in my house has been around 90% the past couple of days. Yeah, here too. So, you know, so Japanese vernacular architecture basically relies on ventilation and shade. So traditional houses have really deep eaves, particularly on the south side, and then they typically really use the stack effect. So what that is is basically the stack effect means that you have hot air rising, right? That's a physics thing. Hot air just rises. And so what you get is then you have the the, um, engawa, which is on the south, and that provides a buffer space in the summer. And then, of course, in the winter, it also provides a sunroom space. And then there's almost always these transom damma windows that are above that, that 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 are on the the upper end of the wall or the upper side of the wall and then on the north side of the house then you have these low floor level windows that are called jimado so when you open up those jimado on the north side of the house then you draw cool air up through the rooms and it exits through the hot south side so this is just a really really simple stack effect that really works to cool down traditional houses and also to ventilate them so that really helps to prevent that mold building yep so and you know this is um this is a really 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 great thing and 2000 years of japanese construction have really come up with you know some really elegant solutions like that but the um the problem is just the winter because, you know, you get in a traditional house and, you know, in the summer, it's just all wonderful. But then in the winter, it's freezing cold, <laughs> freezing cold. Yeah. And you're like, well, why, you know, why have Japanese houses 
over the last 2,000 years, why aren't they warm? Why haven't they insulated them so that they'll be warm in the winter? Well, that's because that humidity thing will just, it, you, you, you'll just get epic mold even in the winter if you close up the rooms. Right. So, so basically traditional air uh, design in a Japanese house is to move it up through the floor so your tatami doesn't have anything underneath it, right? So the air is moving up through the tatami and up through gaps in the walls and the roof. And that's just a, you know, the Japanese houses are just built to be air loose. So that is on purpose. I was wondering about that. Yeah, it's just, that's absolutely on purpose. So, you know, in the, in the coldest months, what you were traditionally expected to do was close your shoji to make your little small box room in the middle of your house and then sit around your sort of huddle around your heated table your kotatsu (laughs) can be really really great but then the kitchen is miserable so but i don't know if you've ever used a kotatsu it's it's i do i love so are you saying that aircon because aircon would dry up the air as well so wouldn't the aircon help with the humidity well now yes i mean this is what i'm talking what i'm talking about is a passive building yep so this is a completely passive building but the problem with mechanical air conditioning and with mechanical circulation is that you can't miss anything. So if you have mechanical circulation and then you have, for example, a coat closet, you better air that thing out regularly because it's going to mold in there. Yeah. And this is one of the problems that um, Japanese construction has with the, um, with the uh, 30-year houses that are built they're not properly ventilated and so they don't last very long they really only last 30 years and then they start to mold and rot and it's pretty nasty so but the thing is that if you have a closed insulated house you can ventilate everything and make it work but i tell you what i have renovated newer houses i renovated one three or four years ago that um it was built, I think it was about 10, 15 years old, and it was very, very heavily insulated, and they also were using wood stoves, which really, really dries out a house. So they were using these wood stoves, it was very heavily insulated, and it was a sort of a Western-style house, and everything was fine until we opened up the cabinets under the sinks, and it just was slow, oh. moldy. And um, even with even with insulated pipes, it was so it was still it was really really moldy. So that's the thing. You just have to you know there's there's always going to be this trade off. So. But um, the other point that about Japanese vernacular architecture, I think that's really really important is that in a um, traditional house, they used natural materials in their natural state, and they also used softwood. And so what that means is that they used pine and cedar and these kinds of very aromatic softwoods. And the good thing about those is, number one, um, indigenous wood is not very attractive to termites because the wood in Japan, the, the trees in Japan have spent the last million years or so developing you know, basically having a war with termites, and uh, they, you know, they're at some somewhat of an impasse. But, but anyway, it's it, it's kind of a little bit of a side note here. But I have 
sometimes seen imported that was like American pine. And um, I, you've seen termites in the house, and the termites will climb up the sugi, the Japanese cedar column, to get to the pine beams. Because they love it that much. Absolutely. Wow. Because it's like, wow, you know, this, this stuff is really tasty. You Exotic. Know? <laughs> get away from that stupid sugi stuff, you know. <laughs> So, um, so that's an interesting thing. But, but anyway, the, the point of using softwoods is that the softwood absorbs moisture and it also then emits, emits moisture in the dry periods. So during this season, if you touch a column that's made of sugi or the hinoki or you know, pine or something like that, if you touch those softwood columns, it won't feel damp. And, you know, she just, you should just try it. I mean, I'm sure you're living in a place, that, or you're probably in a place that has, like, vinyl wall coverings or something like that. And if yep. you just touch it, it feels damp, you know. Yeah, it does. And the flight feels damp. So one of the things that really improves comfort in a traditional house is to have just oiled softwood flooring. And um, just absolutely the, the rest of the surfaces are untreated so that they absorb the humidity. And that's just, in the summer, it feels drier. So it's the same with the natural plaster. It always feels drier because it's always absorbing that extra extra moisture from the air. And then in the winter, it feels warmer because it's not it's not an impermeable membrane. Right. So that the um, air quality issue is a huge thing. Um, vinyl and painted surfaces can really, really lower the air quality in the house um that i definitely i definitely go for using the natural materials yeah but um anyway in years of japanese vernacular construction and then applying modern technology to the mix because is that you can build beautiful passive houses that are cool in the wind in this uh it's a great challenge, though. Right. And that's actually how I found you, too, right? You were applying to a post in a group of folks um, who are building and renovating homes here in Japan. And your expertise was phenomenal, not to mention some of the stuff that you were talking about, which for me was fascinating. Um, I was always of the opinion, for example, like many people, I suppose, that Japanese homes are built light and from less durable materials like wood and not from stone and brick and so forth. Um, simply for financial reasons, right? Because the builders are expecting to rebuild those homes entirely every 20 or 30 years. But apparently there's a lot more to that, isn't there? Oh, yes, there's a ton more. First of all, that housemaker typology, which is pretty much a standard for new construction of single-family homes today, is basically a product of the terrible destruction of Japanese cities during World War II. Um, I know, as you probably know, after the war, there was just a huge need for housing. So at first, the house builders just wanted to get a whole bunch of housing stock up, and it didn't really matter what they were using or what poor construction methods they were using, because there was just this huge need for housing, any housing. But um, at some point, the construction corporations realized that they could just keep doing that. You know, they could just keep building this cheap, basically transitional housing, and people would accept that as the norm. And um, part of the reason that they were able to do that was that as people gained more and more wealth during the um, economic miracle growth years, they kept wanting better and better um, and more modern housing. People wanted to live in the housing like what they saw on their TVs, and they didn't want to have 
uh, cold, bug-infested, smoky house like their grandparents' farmhouse. So it wasn't really hard to convince people that they should rebuild their house every 20 or 30 years to get the most modern thing. But um, unfortunately, you know, while this demolition and rebuilding system is pretty good for the construction companies, and in the short term, it was also pretty good for the conservative government at the time, it's actually pretty bad idea, the idea for a normal person to build a house that can only be expected to last 20 or 30 years before being torn down. And it's actually a really bad idea for the overall economy and for the environment. I mean, just Think of all that construction waste and consider the distressingly huge amount of capital that has been lost when masses of homes became virtually valueless after just 15 years. Instead of building equity in a home, when you buy one of those 30-year houses, your clock starts ticking immediately. And if you don't resell within about five years, you'll be looking at a complete loss of your capital. But um, but aside from that, and I know that's a pretty sensitive political discussion, but anyway, recently the government has been really trying to push housemakers to extend that building lifespan. So I think about four or five years ago, the government basically mandated that house builders should shoot for 42-year houses instead of 30-year houses. But I'm, I'm sure you know a lot about that. But, but anyway, there was a, there was a, a big recommendation for that. But, but in terms of wood, I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's no, there's plenty of buildings in Japan that have lasted a thousand years that are built of wood. So it's not something that's used just because it's cheap um, or because it's easy to use. Really, you know, aside from the air quality things that I mentioned before, there's also a serious concern about typhoons and earthquakes that was really, really elegantly addressed by wood construction in the vernacular. So, um, you know, if you were just talking about typhoons, you'd really want to build stone bunkers. Like you say, you know, your, your, your brick and stone, that's really heavy. And so if you just had a climate where there was nothing but typhoons, then that would be a really, really good construction um, solution. But what you also have here is earthquakes. And so you, you want both a heavy roof, but then you also want a flexible structure because the great thing about a wooden post and beam system is that the joints can be flexible. So a lot of the lateral energy can be te- taken up in the flexing of the joints during an earthquake. Right. This is not so. So if you were not attached to a foundation. So um, since they weren't attached to a good thing, because that means that lateral energy is actually not making the house fall down. So that's, um, that's something that's really, really important about the wood construction. Anyway, that's, that, that's how you can effectively support your heavy typhoon-resistant roof with relatively thin beams and columns in a regular room. And, um, and all of those motifs that you just mentioned, is that what features in your work as well? So are you a traditional Japanese kind of designer, or is your work more modern or Western or a mix, or what is it? Well, yeah, actually, um, definitely it's a mix. I'm pretty much a fusion designer, which is, you know, it's really what my clients expect anyway, just looking at me, you know. So, <laughs> but I'm, 
I'm actually not really interested in building museum pieces that nobody wants to live in. Like, you know, Japanese, just um, slavishly following Japanese traditional architecture. I'm not, I'm not interested in that at all. Um, for one thing, traditional construction is bloody cold in the winter. And, you know, I'm personally too old for that. So, <laughs> um, you know, you can just keep your two like, 12 layer kimonos. And, and, and actually, as much as I love kotatsus, I don't like being tied down to one. Yeah. So, so, but that isn't to say that I'm all in on central heating and net zero housing because I just don't think that's the best or most environmentally appropriate solution in this climate. Um, I think that moderate, moderate and targeted removable insulation, um, you, you can sort of think about what um, traditional houses do with the Amado shutters on the outside of the house. Yep. And, Pair that with all of the passive cooling solutions, and then, and then add in, um, for example, high-performance thermal mass stoves for the winter heat. I think that's um, I think that's definitely more the way to go. But to maintain that um, that excellent ventilation, so and natural ventilation, you know, without the mechanical ventilation, so that you um, uh, don't have mold problems in this really, really, really damp season. But um, that's actually a pretty massive topic, and I, I, I am definitely um, interested in writing a book at, about that when I, when I have time. That, that should be <laughs> a good I one. My current, current remodel. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, I mean, the remodeling, the results of your work are gorgeous. Um, we'll, folks, we'll link to some of Anne's projects uh, in this episode's show notes, so be sure to check them out. It's really stunning work. Okay, and, and then speaking of influence and change and all that, you've gone through another major shift in the last couple of years, haven't you? You're now actually a, a baker, I think. How, how did that one come about? Okay, well, that's another long story. But as I mentioned before, um, I'm very, very gluten intolerant. And um, when I found out about that when I was in my early 30s, I was pretty bummed out because, you know, if you're gluten intolerant, in, especially in Japan, it's just really, really, really hard to eat out. Um, I just get massive intestinal problems and skin rashes. I mean, it's the whole nine yard when I get gluten. So, so um, for a long time, I have um, really had, I, I, you know, I sort of had my eye on whether a cafe or a bakery could be open with gluten-free options. But anyway, so um, how that happened is, you know, I left my lovely job working for Tsushima-san at Kenshi Kokobo Yu in, in 2017, um, I really love those guys, you know, but for various reasons, I just needed to move on. And I got a job at a, a pretty upscale firm in Tokyo at that time. But, you know, the money was really good and the work was interesting, but the commute was like five hours a day. Oh, wow. And yeah, I mean, it was, you know, you can do a certain amount of work on the train, but long term, it just was unsustainable for my health and sanity and my family life. So mm -hmm. Uh, my family really wanted me to stop doing that. So, uh, but I didn't really have enough of a reputation to be able to make a living wage just as an independent practitioner. So, and also I didn't want to work for another firm that wasn't as great as Kinshuku Gobo Yu. So, um, things sort of just came together at that point. Um, my, um, my, uh, I, I saw that gluten-free 
uh, food and understanding of gluten intolerance has really gained prominence in Japan in the last two or three years. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure why it suddenly has um, has uh, become trendy in Japan, but with the Olympics coming up, it just really seemed like a, a good business chance for me. And then, um, you know, we sort of talked about that and threw ideas back and forth, and then one of my um, good friends from Kinshikubobo, you decided to retire, and he had the idea of partnering a community development NPO with my bakery here in our little village in Oda. And one thing led to another, and pretty soon, you know, I'm designing my kitchen and applying for business loans and grants and exploring marketing, and, and uh, I, you know, it became real. And so then <laughs> I, I thought, well, you know, obviously starting a business takes an extreme amount of time and effort, so I, I really expected that I put my design work on hold for at least a year, but lucky for me, I guess, um, I've been asked to do some consulting work anyway, which, of course, I couldn't resist. Mm. <laughs> so, but I've really made it clear to, uh, to my family and stuff that I'm not abandoning architecture to open the bakery. So once I get the company on its feet, I really hope to uh, spend at least part of my time on design and uh, community de- development projects. So, but um, speaking of designing that kitchen, this was... Also, something about, you know, fusion architecture, I sort of feel like I have a, a pretty different perspective on what a kitchen should be than, than many Japanese might have. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, like I said, this is the first commercial kitchen I've ever designed, so I, I visited as many small bakeries as I could. And, um, and I just found that, wow, you know, the... Uh, defining feature of a small production environment in Japan tends to be pretty much grimness. Um, they tend to be cramped and dim and uncomfortable and kind of grimy. So, um, yeah, so my fusion sensibilities came out, and so my, I, I, my design is definitely something that an American would probably appreciate a lot more. Uh, it's bright, it's pleasant it's easy to clean it has natural wood in it you know the windows and some of the fittings and um but it's also built with um japanese traditional carpentry techniques um and uh with of course non-toxic non-toxic natural materials so it's gorgeous too it's really inspiring i mean i'm not much of a cook but i'd love to cook in a kitchen like that so yeah i mean yeah you, you should be very proud of it and folks again if any of you are looking for a designer or a renovator um, again, we highly recommend and check out our work. Um, I've got a feeling, especially for our English listeners, that it might be exactly what many of you are looking for in your um, homes or workspaces but can't really uh, find. Okay, so, and just before we let you go, what's on your plate these days? What kind of work are you looking to take on or taking on? Or what kind of balance are you trying to strike exactly? Um, where do you see yourself, I guess, in five, ten years? Well, thanks very much for the compliment. I do like this space, and I particularly love that it smells nice, even when I'm not making anything, <laughs> because I used Osmo stains and Lipos natural paints. And the other thing that I that I want to say is that you know I really built it on a shoestring, and that's another thing that I that I uh, uh, that I want to do in the future is do projects that are you know I, I'm not really interested in building stuff for you know for for. People who just want to showcase. I, I really am interested in building things for um, for regular people uh, 
to live in and to work in and to love, you know, I, I, I want people to, to love the space that they come home to. Um, so one of the things I'm working on right now is a small remodel project in Tokyo. And uh, that's also, a, a, it's right up my alley. It's a really, really tight space. It's just like, you know, trying to maximize the space usage, sort of like a puzzle. So, but the other thing I'm interested in the future is that, you know, I'm, I'm obviously I'm renovating my own house right now, but I do live in a co-housing situation, my family and then uh, another person. And we're really, um, we're really uh, focused on expanding that co-housing idea. Um, there are some really, really great projects in, for example, particularly in, in Portland, Oregon, where there are uh, relatively old and established co-housing um, developments. And um, I'd really like to do something like that, maybe not quite as big and ambitious as some of those, but, but I think that co-housing is something really important that we can do to make ourselves more flexible for the climate change that's coming up and also probably social changes that are coming up. You know, especially because so many people have few children and their families are living more separately. So I love the idea of being able to share a really nice bath and garden areas and office spaces or gathering spaces while having my own private spaces, like my kitchen. You know, I'm not really great on sharing a kitchen. <laughs> but um, I really think community housing is a, a really great way to meet the challenges of the coming era of environmental and social changes. So, Oh, and the other thing I'm going to do is I'm, I'm writing a, I'm definitely writing a book and interviewing, um, interviewing my old boss, Tsushima-san, at uh, Kenchiku Kobo-yu. That's something I've sort of been working off and on on for a while. That one I would love to hear. Those stories uh, really get the imagination going. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some really great stories. <laughs> That's great. So can't, can't wait to see how things pan out for you. And it would also be great just to have you on the show once in a while, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just to okay. keep us um, yeah, updated on current trends or showcase you know, interesting projects that you've been involved in or that others have been involved in and so forth. So th thanks again for taking the time to speak with us today, Anne. It was great chatting with you. Oh, great. Thank you so much. So, there you have it. Eye-opening, wasn't it? I know I certainly enjoyed this conversation with Anne. Hope you did as well. And again, be sure to check out the show notes for some samples of her work, as well as her current new and expanded career as a baker. We'll also put in her contact details in case you want to chat her up regarding any potential design or building projects you may have had in mind. And of course, feel free to share this episode, as well as the podcast in general, with anyone else who may find this content interesting or useful in any way. And we would love it if you could leave us your comments, questions, or even just click on the review or rate button in the iTunes store and let us know what you think. Hope to have you with us again next time. And until then, stay safe, dry, and prepared, especially if you're in Japan during this wet season. Speak to you again soon. And until then, yoroshiku. Yoroshiku.